Our scripture passage for this morning drops us right into the middle of a conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. We will begin reading in verse 9 and we will end in verse 21. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word this morning? Hear now the word of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray together. O Lord our God, we come to you this morning in our helplessness, in our emptiness, in our neediness, asking you to feed us the crumbs from your table. And yet we also come knowing that in your kindness, you will do even more than we're able to ask or imagine. Would you do that for us this morning, Lord? Would you send your spirit? Would you quicken our hearts to delight in you and understand what you have for us? In Christ's name, we ask these things. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as I mentioned, we're stepping right into the middle of a conversation here this morning. Uh, it's a deep conversation. It's one that has left Nicodemus, someone who is a self, uh, who is, is understood by Jesus to be a teacher of Israel. He's stepping into this conversation and he's, we're t- uh, he's talking to Nicodemus about this intense question about what it means to be born again. And last week, as he talked to Jesus, one of the things that that we saw was that there's this struggle going on in the heart of Nicodemus about what is the kingdom of God. And Jesus wants him to know that he can't even understand. He's going to continue to struggle with the idea of the kingdom of God unless he is actually born again. And that prompted Jesus to talk about this. What is the new birth? What does it mean to be born again? What does it mean to have the spirit come in and change you? into a new person. 
But Jesus isn't finished at all with what he's saying to Nicodemus. In fact, Nicodemus has more questions. And so this morning, we continue to follow this line of thought as we learn from Jesus about three things. The difficulty of Nicodemus, the design of God, and the death of condemnation. So we have the difficulty, we have the design, and we have the death. Three points this morning. First, we see the difficulty of Nicodemus here. You you notice this theme with the way that Nicodemus asks his questions. He keeps leading his inquiries off with how, how, how. He wants to know. He doesn't understand how spiritual things work. He wants to know the mechanics. He wants to know the details about these spiritual things that Jesus is discussing. And the issue, according to Jesus, is that he is talking about heavenly things. And grasping a heavenly thing without a spiritual mindset is impossible. Jesus paints this picture in verse 12. He says, if I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And so there's this dilemma going on here. He says, I've been starting off with the training wheels on and you're having trouble. Imagine if I took them off, you know. Uh, Jesus was so good with illustrations. He he, he could take a spiritual issue that is deeply difficult to understand and conceive of, and he would just use everyday encounters to make those things come alive. Last week, we saw him use the illustration of birth, and we also saw him use the illustration of wind, trying to sort of help Nicodemus understand. He said, the wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. That was in verse 8. And he points out the problem. He says, these are heavenly things and you're having trouble grasping it, but he he forges ahead. Now, here's here's the issue, though. The problem for Nicodemus is not a matter of intelligence. This is not a matter of IQ. This is not a matter of education because Jesus says, you're the teacher of Israel. If there's anybody in the room that's probably smarter than everybody else, it's probably Nicodemus. Nicodemus is issue is not a matter of education. It's not a matter of knowledge. Um, Spiritual understanding and knowledge are not equivalent. They're not the same. Some of the most spiritually deep Christians that I have ever known have been people who were not college educated. Some of them weren't even high school educated. Um, But what happened? They sat under the preaching of the word for years. They read their Bibles. They listened to the scripture as they were preached. You know, they, they probably couldn't tell you Thomas Aquinas' five proofs for the existence of God. Uh, they probably couldn't win an argument with an atheist and send them running away crying or, or make the Mormons they feel like they've, they've been ambushed when they come to your house. Maybe they couldn't do those things. But I tell you this, they were deeply prayerful people. They were humble. They knew what it was to rise up each morning, to cry out to God, to read the scripture, and to throw themselves upon the mercy of Jesus each and every day. It would be better to be that kind of person than someone who is just filled up with knowledge and has no understanding and no spiritual grasp of what's going on in the world around them. Godliness and knowledge are not the same things. Because Nicodemus shows us that. He shows us the greatest problem is not knowledge here. I think about knowledge. Think about the world we live in right now. Uh, uh, each of us carries around in our pocket probably a device that in a matter of seconds could give you all the information that you could ever need. 
It tells you any piece of knowledge that human beings have acquired and and put together. We have information out the wazoo. And yet, what has it done for the soul of our society? We are experiencing an existential crisis as people living in the West today. People increasingly have no sense of self, no sense of understanding of who they are, no sense of where they're going or where they're supposed to go. The problem is not knowledge, even though we have plenty of it. Um, What do we usually do with knowledge anyway? If our hearts are bad, what do we do with knowledge? We take it, we twist it, we use it for our own ends. Um, uh, we, We try to shape the world after our own image, make things the way that we want them to be. But what we don't do is shape the world the way that it ought to be. If our hearts aren't right, then that's exactly what we're going to do with knowledge, with information. It's sort of like a weapon. Right? You've maybe heard the illustration before, but a weapon is just a weapon until it's in somebody's hand and they're misusing it. All that matters is the hand that the weapon is in. Knowledge without understanding is destructive. It's destructive to the soul. It's destructive to us. It's destructive to our society. The problem is not that we need more of it. And that is the difficulty Nicodemus is having here. He's the teacher of Israel, he has knowledge. And he can't understand heavenly things. He can't understand heavenly things because he needs to be born again. And so what's he doing? He can't, keeps asking how, how, how. He's spinning his wheels and he's struggling. I want to be careful that we don't read something like this. And especially this passage where he talks about the new birth and think, well, this is an application for secular people who don't get the gospel now, I, I think it is that. It's, there's certainly an application for somebody here who rejects God, doesn't want God. But this is more than that. Because look at, the, look at the principle here. The principle here is knowledge alone doesn't cut it. Teaching alone isn't all that we need. It, it, you know, if you're a believer, I wonder if you've ever fallen into this trap when you find yourself in a spiritual dilemma. And by the way, it just depends on your personality. Some of you do not have this bend. I I kind of have this tendency. But but sometimes I fool myself into thinking that what I need if I'm in a real spiritual downturn is what I need is maybe one more book. Maybe if I read this book over here. Maybe if I read that book over here. Maybe if I read this Puritan over here, then I'm going to read it and I'm going to get better. I'm going to feel better. And, and I've had times where I wasn't spiritually well and I decided, well, I'll solve my spiritual problem by gaining knowledge. And I'll study this and I'll just fill myself up with it so much that there won't be any room for, for the ugliness of my own heart. And the reality was that wasn't the solution. What I should have done was put down the book and prayed and cry out to God because my problem was a spiritual problem. My problem was a matter of, I'm not talking to God. I'm using these books to protect me from God. I'm using these things to shield me from actually being confronted by the God of heaven and earth. Now, that's not to say that knowledge is going to hurt your relationship with God, but simply, how do you use it? Do you cry out to God when you should be? Do you, do you go to the spiritual solutions that God gives or do you just try to find a way to forge ahead with your own answer to the question? Because the problem is not knowledge. Uh, when we try to solve our problems that way, we're bringing a knife to a gunfight. It's not going to help us. What does Jesus say? He says, knowledge isn't bad and it doesn't necessarily hurt, but ultimately you need spiritual eyes to grasp heavenly things. 
not a head full of facts. And this is the, the problem Nicodemus at least has in our first point. He has knowledge, but he needs the sort of spiritual understanding that only comes with the new birth. And so he keeps hitting his head against the wall. He's not going to get very far without the new birth. Second, we see the design of God. And we see this in verses 14 to 17. Jesus has <clears throat> just told Nicodemus that he, that he won't understand heavenly things unless he listens to him. And then he gets very specific and he talks about himself. He starts to talk about Jesus. He gets bigger picture here. What is the solution to the deadness of Nicodemus' soul? What is the solution to the deadness of your soul? What is the way that a holy God and a Holy Spirit can dwell within you even though you're a sinner? Well, Jesus answers that exact dilemma in verses 14 and 15. He gives the illustration first, then he gives the principle. And the illustration he uses is from the Old Testament. In verses 14 and 15, he starts to talk to Nicodemus about this episode in Numbers 21. In Numbers 21, the the people of Israel are in the wilderness. They've been carried along faithfully by God. He's looked after them. And they start complaining. They start saying, we would rather go back to Egypt. We would rather go back there. They had onions there. They had flowing water there. Boy, everybody just loves thinking about onions. It just makes you hungry. Um, You know, they have all these things that apparently Israelites like that I don't care for necessarily. But they have a taste for this old life and they want to go back there. And so they grumble against God and God gives them a taste of what they deserve. He doesn't give them all that they deserve. But he gives them a taste of it. It says that he sent serpents, poisonous serpents among the people, and the serpents start to bite the people. And so he's, again, he's giving them a taste of judgment, even though he's not, he's not giving them the fullness of it. He's giving them a little bit of it. And now here they are. They've been poisoned by these serpents. And so his solution is he tells Moses to make this bronze serpent, put it on a pole, hold it up in the air, and whoever looks at it is cured of the poison of the serpents. Now, it's an interesting episode. Um, Nicodemus should know about this. If he's the teacher of Israel, then he knows about the bronze serpent and he knows about this moment in the life of Israel. But Jesus is taking Nicodemus' knowledge of this historical moment in Israel's life and he's lifting his eyes higher and saying, yeah, you know that history, but you need to understand there was somebody else that was pointing to and he points to himself. He says, you know that story, Nicodemus, how all you had to look, do was look at that serpent and live? Well, I'm that serpent that you should look to. And I won't save you from a snake bite. I'll save you from something far worse. I'll save you from your very own sin. I was talking about numbers earlier this year in the class I do at Belhaven, And the student asked me a question. He said, this seems ridiculous. <laughs> he said, this seems ridiculous that God would have them look at a snake so you could be saved from a snake. Um, And maybe you think the same thing. That is kind of weird, isn't it? But there's this principle that Numbers 21 lays out for us, and it comes back to us with Jesus. And the idea here is the cure for our sickness looks like the sickness. The cure for our sickness looks like the sickness. Jesus was lifted up on the cross, and what happened in that moment when Jesus was lifted up on the cross Paul tells us in, first, in 2 Corinthians 5, he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of Christ. 
In other words, Jesus is lifted up. He becomes sin. And just like the serpent, what is he going to cure us of? He's going to cure us of sin. Just like that serpent was lifted up and cured the people of the serpents, Jesus is lifted up as sin, and he becomes sin so that we can be rescued from sin. He looked like a sinner. Here he was between two criminals, both of them with death sentences on them. And everyone looks at Jesus and they shake their head and they say, he's one of them. He's a sinner just like these guys. So what happened with Jesus is he becomes the thing that he is sent to destroy, just like the serpents in the wilderness were defeated by the one that looked just like them. The cure for the sickness looks like the sickness. And that's what Jesus reminds us of here. And then Jesus says something beautiful in verse 16. It's such a well-known verse. I almost don't even need to read it out loud to you, but I love it so much. I want to read it anyway. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. I was terrified to even preach this sermon because anytime I preach something and it's such a good verse and it's such a a famous verse or such a popular verse, it's just intimidating. You say, how can I match up to the actual verse? Uh, Nothing I say here is going to uh, be better than just reading it. And I still think that's true. And so rather than just blow your heads off with the uh, something amazing here, taking this already perfect verse and amplifying it a thousand times, rather, let's do this. Let's follow Jesus's logic. Why does he say this? Why does he say this? He told us about the serpent. He told us that he's the real serpent who will save you if you look at him. But then here, this is the moment where he touches on the why This is the moment where he touches on the purpose. Why would he come? Why would he become sin for us? Why would he do this thing that he's been talking about? What is the reason? It's an incredibly deep question. But because it's so popular, especially this verse, it becomes something that we just don't even think very much about. But Jesus wants us to know the why. For. He begins with for. He's explaining the reason why. He gives two reasons why God gave his only son. And both of them are interlocked together. You notice this. The first reason he says is because God loved the world. Think about that phrase. Just let that, let that sink in for a moment. God loved the world. It is very easy for us as Christians, I think, in, in our culture today to feel assaulted, marginalized, maybe frustrated with the state of the world that we live in. And we can sort of become sour, especially if we're if we you know, sort of immersed in culture war type stuff. And we start to get a, an us versus them mentality of the people around us. And we become sour. And we can only find ourselves speaking words of frustration and condemnation and anger at the world around us. We can get to that place. And yet look at God's posture here. It's a posture of love. It's a posture of benevolence. I want good for you. It turns out he isn't out to hurt people. He isn't out to watch the world burn. He loves the world. This is his creation. And as people, we're made in his image. We have inherent worth. Every person you meet has inherent worth because they're made in the image of God. Now, that doesn't mean that they're worthy of being saved. It doesn't mean that we're worthy of being saved. Being made in the image of God just means that we have inherent worth. It doesn't mean that we deserve salvation necessarily. But we know this. 
We weren't created by God just for him to play with and and torture or, or something like that. He made us and put his mark on us. And the passage says he loves us. Why? Because we're creatures of his and we're made in his image. That's the first motivating reason why he would send his son. But the second is this, and it's more specific. It narrows down even more. He sent his son to save sinners. What does he say? He said, he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Now, here's our difficulty. We, We hear that God loves the world, but we don't know what love is, at least not in our culture. If we rely on the culture around us to tell us what love is, then when we hear God love the world, we are completely baffled at what this could possibly mean because we think love is a sentiment. We think love is a feeling or an impulse that is produced by being in close proximity to something that is beautiful or something that is worthy. Um, You see an adorable puppy and you love it because all little puppies are adorable. I've never seen a little puppy that is ugly. And even the ugly ones are just cuter because they're ugly, you know. Um, That's how we are. Our heart goes out to things that are worthy of our love. Um, whoever saw a torn up car tire on the side of the road and said, I love that. <laughs> we don't do that. That's, we don't function that way. I will love you if you are worthy. That's the message of what love is in our culture today. And yet the love that God has for the world is not that kind of love. His love is not reactive love that sits back and waits for us to become worthy and then responds by feeling warm toward us. That is not the love of God. No, his love comes first. He loves an unworthy world. He loves an ugly world. If you're a Christian, understand that he showed you a saving kind of love before you deserved to be loved like that. Doesn't that make you feel good (laughs) to know that the love he has for you is not conditioned on your performance? That you're not more secure because you had a good day? Um, And you're not worse off because you had a bad day. God's love isn't passive where he sort of waits for us to be admirable. And then he responds by saying, boy, I sure love that guy or I sure love that girl. God doesn't do that at all. He's more like the chaplain who walks into death row and he sees someone throwing himself against the bars and hurting everyone around him and saying, there, that one, I love him. And he lets him out of the cell and tends his wounds and cleans him up and rescues him. That's the sort of rescue that we're talking about. That's the kind of love that God has. And just so you know, that's what we're all like on the inside. We all need to see ourselves that way. We need to see ourselves as the one on death row who's throwing himself against the walls, bashing his head against the walls, hurting people around him. That's what we're all like in our natural state on the inside. We have to have the humility to see ourselves that way. You know what? If God waited for that little psychopath inside of each of our hearts to become lovable and calm and presentable before he would save us, then we would still be hitting our heads against the wall and gnashing our teeth. When I hear that God loves the world, I have a reaction to that. And it's not really an admirable reaction. Depends on if I've been watching the news lately. It depends on if I if look at the world around me. Because I see the news and I see a world that is not very lovable. 
I go on Twitter, I see a whole society that is totally unlovable. And more often than not, my love is conditional. My, my thinking is, give me something and I'll adore you for another day. And that's what bowls us over about God. He sent Christ because he loved the world first. And it's an unlovable world. It's an unworthy world full of unworthy people. Yet he sends his son anyway. Aren't you glad that Adam Parker is not the God of the universe? But here's the real design of Christ. This is what he says. He says he sent him that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Very briefly, the three parts of that. The first part of that is faith. He says, whoever believes in him. Jesus is saying that if you want eternal life, you need to believe in Jesus. He's already told Nicodemus that without the new birth, that won't happen. He's already told him that he needs spiritual eyes or he won't believe. But without believing in Christ, you don't receive any of the things that he came to give. The second component of the plan is is forgiveness. He says that they should not perish. In other words, we deserve to perish. The plan is that we deserve to perish, but Christ says no. We deserve punishment, but because we're in Christ, we don't get the punishment. Instead, the punishment we deserve falls on Christ's head. That's the design that Jesus is talking about here. And then the third component of God's plan is eternal life. In other words, it isn't enough for us just to be forgiven in this life. To wake up each day knowing we're not guilty knowing that we can live our lives, knowing that we're free of condemnation, knowing that Jesus Christ loves us, that is good. And actually, that should be something that is sufficient for us. But the reality is we are all eternal beings. Every single one of us has immortal souls. And we need something more than just hope for this life. Paul says, if we have hope for this life only, we are of all people to be condemned. So in other words, we need eternal life, not just forgiveness in the here and now. And what this should do, what this reality of eternal life should do is spur in us a love of our neighbor in part. C.S. Lewis, and and I hope you'll forgive the the language of how he says gods and goddesses at the beginning. He just means eternal people here. But C.S. Lewis says something like this about our neighbors. He says, It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or other of these destinations. You have never talked to a mere mortal. In other words, eternal life is not just something that we talk about or use as a slogan, but it is the reality of every single person who is a, not a mere mortal. And every person you meet in your life is not a mere mortal. Everybody you meet matters, and they should matter to you because they matter to God. And so when Jesus says they will not perish but have eternal life, he's showing us the value of a soul. And he's reminding us that it matters what happens to each person that you meet. Third this morning, we see the death of condemnation. Now, Jesus has spelled out the plan of God. He he goes into greater depths. 
Uh, As he ends his conversation with Nicodemus, though, because he goes further, listen, he says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. Now, in some ways, Jesus is just building on what he said a moment before. But notice this notion repeatedly drawn out a couple of times here. God did not send his son to condemn the world. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. For Jesus Christ, the difference between condemnation and salvation revolves ultimately around the question of faith. It is not a question of quantity or quality. One of the things that I think a lot of Christians feel is they say, my faith is weak. My faith isn't strong. My faith hasn't held up. I feel like I have the weakest faith there is. And one of the things the Puritans were so fond of reminding us of is that it is not a question of the quality or quantity of faith. It's a question of the object of your faith. The smallest bit of faith is sufficient to save. It's not the quality of your faith that saves you. It's not the great saints that are saved. It's just the saints who are saved. It's the one you place your faith in that saves you. Isn't that good news? Especially if you don't often feel very good about your own heart. And even especially if you feel like a spiritual failure most of the time. What God is doing for us here is he's solidifying us regardless of how great we are, regardless of how advanced we are in the faith. He's giving us gospel news here. Do you believe in Jesus? If you do, you are not condemned. You'll never receive what your past deserves. It doesn't matter if you've done the worst thing that a human being can possibly imagine. Now, you may face earthly consequences for it. You may uh, have to do even jail time, maybe, for what you've done. But if you are really in Christ by faith, you are not condemned. There are no limits to the depths of sin that God will forgive. God would forgive a person who killed 10,000 people. I hope that sounds scandalous to you. I hope that sounds very scandalous to you. People who don't deserve it being let off scot-free even from the most serious crimes. You mean God does that? Yes, he does. And I hope that just the thought of that leaves you feeling scandalized by the gospel. I think that's a sign that you actually heard the gospel. The fact that you would tremble at the thought of somebody like that being forgiven. The rest of the book of John is people struggling with spiritual blindness who largely don't seem to get what Jesus is doing, what he's about, why he's come. And yet in the gospel, what do we see? A whole rogues gallery of converts, right? Notorious sinners, tax collectors, thieves, prostitutes, people who prove that the beauty of grace is that it makes life not fair. I think this is the key to grasping this message from Jesus to Nicodemus. It's seeing our sin for what it is. So that the things we've thought, the plans we've fantasized about, the backbiting words of unkindness that we've uttered or kept inside, so that they seem to us as ugly and disgusting as the person who murdered 10,000 people. Do we see ourselves that way? Do Do we see ourselves like this? Are we willing to have a negative thought about ourselves 
If you don't believe, do you see your, your guilt at least? Maybe you sit there skeptical. You say, nah, this, um, I've been made to come, or I'm here out of routine, and I don't really believe, but here's my question. Do you see your guilt at least? Jesus sets himself before you today, and he says with his own lips, believe in me, and you won't be condemned. Now, those of us who are believers, he says something to us as well. He says, do you see your guilt? You saw it when you first believed. Do you still see your guilt? Do you see that you need Jesus as much today as you did when you first believed? Do you feel that way? None of us ever outgrow this message. This is not a message that we mature beyond. Until we get to the other side of glory, we're going to keep fighting and resisting this message. Um, each of us carries around, Jared Wilson in his, in his book, The Imperfect Disciple, uses this illustration of a bucket. And he says, each of us comes into church on Sunday and we carry a gospel bucket. And he says that hopefully uh, we heard the gospel that day and we fill up the bucket. But as we go around, do our lives throughout the day, one thing we discover is that there is a leak in the bottom. There is a leak in the bottom of our bucket. And so what do we have to do each day? We have to get up and we have to pour the gospel back in again. And we have to keep reminding ourselves. And then we come back on Sunday or Wednesday or whatever the church does for us. And we fill it back up again. And we keep being filled up with the gospel again. And it keeps leaking right out the bottom again. Because we keep forgetting. We keep either putting our eyes on ourselves and remembering all the bad things we've done. Or worse yet, the good things we've done. And the gospel leaks out. And we forget that we're a sinner and we forget that we're sick. And we set our eyes on the world around ourselves and say, oh, look at how bad the world has gotten. If only they'd turn back to God again. And what we forget to do is to turn to God ourselves. Do you see that you're a sinner and that you're sick? Jesus says, I came for the sick. I didn't come for the righteous. I came from the, for the person who sees his heart issues. I didn't come for that person who thinks they're perfectly fine. You see, Jesus demands that we see our heart for what it is. Are you willing to admit that you're sick? I'm not even just asking this question to unconverted, unsaved people. I ask this question to Christians too. Do you still see your ongoing issue of sin? Do you still see your need to follow and re-follow Jesus every day as his disciple? He came for the sick. He came to justify the ungodly. He didn't come to justify the godly. They don't need to be justified. Are you one of the ungodly people who need to be justified in the eyes of God? This is a passage that turns our attention to the sacrifice that God gave so that we could have these things. And J.I. Packer has said this. He says, the measure of love is how much it gives. And the measure of the love of God is the gift of his only son to be made man. You don't get more precious than that. And you will never find a greater love than this. Let's pray. Father, you love this world. And you sent your son into it that the world through him might be saved. Would you persuade us that that includes us? Would you do that by showing us the needs of our own soul, but also the depths of your grace. Give us your son and give us the ability to walk in freedom without condemnation because that is why you sent him. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.